Hey, this is Brian Reisman, host of SciJams. I hope you enjoy this latest episode and check out my growing catalog of interviews. If you want to keep up with the show, feel free to follow it on Facebook or Instagram or through my Brian Reisman account on Twitter. I have a lot of exciting things coming up, including the show's second anniversary. Hey, this is Diamante, and you're listening to Side Jams with Brian Reisman. Guitarist and singer Damon Johnson has immersed himself in the world of hard rock throughout his career, and his high-powered new album Battle Lessons with his power trio The Get Ready proudly reflects his classic 70s influences. It's the culmination of over three decades in rock and roll, which started in the 90s with Brother Kane and Slave to the System, then his time touring with Alice Cooper, creating solo albums, and playing with his favorite band, Thin Lizzy, and recording and touring with their later incarnation, Black Star Riders. He's also co-written songs for artists including Stevie Nicks, Skid Row, and Carlos Santana. Going solo again has been a liberating and fun experience for him, and Damon Johnson and the Get Ready hope to play some shows later this year. When he's not hitting the stage, Damon loves to hit the links. For episode 46 of Side Jams, he spoke to me about his love for golf. His initial attraction grew into a passion after he toured with Alice Cooper, who golfed almost as many times as he played shows on the road. During this chat, Damon recalls memorable and embarrassing golfing moments, celebrity run-ins, courses he has enjoyed playing on, and why the sport continues to captivate him. I've had dinner or drinks with Damon in group settings twice before, and this was our first time having a true one-on-one conversation. We had a good time. Well, thanks for taking the time to chat. My pleasure, buddy. Where are you? I am in New York. We've actually met a couple times before. It's been a while. I remember you and Ricky were in town with my friend Luana. I think it was the fall of 2013 or 2014. I had just met my friend Vanessa at Comic-Con. It was a German reporter. We met you guys at a hotel. And Ricky was telling us stories about the Almighty when they had that one listening session where they screwed with the executives and pretended that this free jazz thing where they were doing was their new album, which was great. And then I was at the dinner, I think, for the Killer Instinct in New York at that Chinese restaurant. Wow. Right on, Brian. And you guys had just gotten the news that Killer Instinct had gotten like nine out of ten in classic rock? Brother, your memory is impeccable, man. Yeah, I totally remember that. Well, that was a thrill for us because uh, classic rock is the standard bearer over there in the UK for sure. Yeah, those were good times. Well, man, this is this is fantastic to uh, to get to talk to you today, Brian. I appreciate you having me on. Well, I appreciate chatting with you. I decided to do this podcast because I always said these big interviews, like I'll chat with you guys at dinner and it'll go off into a tangent that never makes it into a story because you always have word counts. Right. And sometimes, you know, what we find interesting on the on the side is not always part of the main story. And I mean, you know what? I'm enjoying your new album. It's got a lot of the vibe of stuff you've done before, but it's now stripped down into a power trio. You know, yeah, it doesn't have the big guitar harmonies that you had, like in Black Star and Thin Lizzy. And it's more focused on your playing and vocals. Yes. One hundred percent, man. Has it been liberating? It really has, Brian. I mean, it's been liberating from the standpoint of becoming an artist again. You know, I haven't really been my own artist as a singer since way back in the 90s with Brother Kane, really. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd done a couple of side projects. Slave to the System with Scott Rockenfield. Slave to the System. Yeah, man, that was a great one. I love that and, one. Uh, I think I was, uh, I don't know, man. I just remember, you know, Brother Kane ended unceremoniously. And in my brain at that time, I think I took a lot of that on the shoulder, you know, myself. I kind of, because it was, man, I was the front man. I was writing the songs and we just, 
the band was a mess emotionally and financially and you know yeah so then i did slave to the system which on paper just looked almost unstoppable and i was so proud of those songs but we just couldn't get that off the ground because everyone was in other major projects you know the guys from queensrike and i was i just joined alice cooper's band the year before so that's right you know everything that happened over the next 10 years and all it's like i don't know brother three years ago I had already made a couple of solo records and treated them like side projects because that's what they were. But I, I writing some new stuff and, you know, man, I felt like black star writers for all the things I love about it. I love everything about it, but we were, we had one place where we were making an impact and that was in the UK. And I was spending so much time over there. And I started thinking, man, if I'm going to be, if I'm going to keep doing this for the rest of my life, I, I need to build, I would like to try to build a fan base in North America where I live, where my family is. Yeah. And hopefully have a little more control over my life, my calendar and that kind of thing. So what started out is almost a, uh, I guess for lack of a better description, Brian, like a business decision quickly turned into like this artistic fulfillment that I just never really could see coming. Yeah. And it's been empowering and you know the reaction to my uh 2019 record memoirs of an uprising yep was great and i was happy about it again we didn't move the needle much more than like any of my other previous solo stuff but this battle lessons thing is something else altogether different and you know i'm proud to give my trio a name to get ready uh you know these guys are stars in their own right i mean i could have never dreamt i'd have something like this together, this quality with yeah. guys that I have so much respect for and have so much history with. I think Shadow Country is my favorite track on the album. Thank you, brother. So many people talking about Shadow Country. Um, well, it's like anthemic and it's atmospheric. It's I think that's well said. You know, if Nick Raskulinix was on this call with us, he would be laughing because we, we recorded the record in three groups of three songs at a time. So in, you know, the pandemic is what forced all that to happen. Right, right. So in between the first two groups of three, Nick said, hey, man, I want you to try to write some more stuff. And I didn't resist. I didn't fight him. But I do remember thinking in my head, like, well, the record is great. It was loaded with killers. Um, Okay, well, I didn't have anything else to do. So I was like, so one day. I came downstairs and just literally killing some time. And I stumbled on this, uh, this idea that my great friend, Jim Troglin, uh, he's my collaborator. And we've been friends since the early brother Kane days. And he sent me something that was a lot of nothing, but I just kept messing around with it. And, you know, two hours later, man, I had shadow country. And I was <laughs> like, hey, man, this is like, you know, this is going to blow everybody away. You know, thinking about Nick, thinking about the guys in the band, thinking about my buddy, Jim. And Jim is the one I sent the demo to first. And he usually we, he just texts because he's got a straight job and he's working all the time. But he called me, Brian. He's like, dude, what the fuck? This is insane. You know, so uh, what a thrill. I'm getting yeah. all this feedback from my little fan base. And man, there's no question. Shadow Country is at the top of uh, a, a lot of people's list of their favorites. So thank you for mentioning that song. Sure. Yeah. That, and the album came out right on my birthday. I'm like, oh, that's an interesting coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday. Well, thank you. 
Yeah, it was so weird this year. I usually do like a gathering with people and I'm like, well, I'll just do a virtual, did a virtual Zoom, you know, Zoom call with some of my high school friends and maybe I'll use an excuse. I don't do the Zoom thing very much. I mean, I, I do it for my interviews and things like that. But I guess the advantage we have as, as artists in the pandemic is we can kind of hunker down and just create things. Yeah. But it, it is, you know, it is nice to connect. I'm a, I don't know when we're going to do in-person interviews again at some point. Um, hope so, bro. I hope we do. I can't wait to see people up close and personal again, hopefully soon. For side jams, I know we were going to talk about your passion for golf, which is something that you share with Alice Cooper. Have you been to a lot of golf courses lately? Depends where I guess where you live right now is the question. Well, I live in Nashville and we are able to play golf a little, you know, something that feels more like year round than other places, certainly where you are in New York. But, um, yeah, you know, man, I golf, I never, I couldn't afford to play when I was a kid. You know, my parents didn't play. I grew up in a tiny town, so there was no golf. So I didn't touch a golf club until I was in Brother Kane, ironically. And I, I met, uh, I made a friend with a doctor in Phoenix. He uh, was an ear, nose and throat doctor that I saw when I blew my voice out when we were on tour in 93. And we just became great friends, Brian. And golf has been his passion his whole life. So he came on the road with me for about four shows and he could tell, man, that the lifestyle of a traveling rock and roll musician was froth with potholes. <laughs> yes. You know? The, the things that you would do to kill the downtime, uh, most of them were not healthy in any way. So it was, I have him to thank really to kind of get me started. And I started playing a little bit. I still lived in Birmingham, Alabama at the time. So I remember I would, I would start playing and then I would find other people that played like buddies of mine that I didn't know played or uh, the neighbor down the street, he played. And, you know, I just, I should have taken lessons. I, I didn't. So I kind of stunk it up for a long time, but there's no question, no question. The day Alice Cooper called me to tell me I had passed the audition, they had picked me out of the seven or eight guys that had tried out. And I asked him, would it be okay if I bring my golf clubs? Brian, he belly laughed. Like he laughed. I'll never forget the sound of his laugh. And I said, well, hey, I, I'm not very good, but, you know, I just thought maybe we could play once a, once a week. And he's laughing. He goes, Damon, once a week. He goes, we play golf every day. You just oh won the lottery. You just won the lottery. <laughs> that's a lot of so, golf. That's a lot of golf, brother. And listen, it was incredible. It was incredible, the experience. Because look, man, I was, I was, uh, I had just married for a second time two years prior. We had just had uh, our first child as a couple. I had three kids from my older marriage. So, you know, man, just being on the road, really, for me, it was just a lot of boredom. So joining Alice Cooper was, yeah, yeah. I, it's like I won, no I won, I, 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 I won the sweepstakes. So we played, you know, I, I, these are real numbers, Brian. If the, if the tour over the course of a year was a hundred shows, I'm not exaggerating. We played 85 rounds of golf, quite possibly more because wow. every off day, you know, we were playing and Alice had no problem playing on show days. And the only time we would miss it is if, uh, you know, there was a weather issue or a travel issue. And the other thing I have to mention, man, is most of these rounds, 95% of them were comped by 
Alice's friends at Callaway. He's, you know, he's had a relationship with the company for, for decades. So wow, that's great. It was a win. Yeah, it was a win-win because, you know, Callaway benefited from having this famous, you know, rock star roll into, you know, whatever golf course he did the day of the show, you know, and Callaway would send us to the course where they, you know, that course sold their products. So they would prearrange all this stuff, Brian. We would literally get a golf itinerary. You know, here's the tour itinerary in this book but then we got another book that was the golf itinerary <laughs> <laughs> wow so is a, is a manufacturer of golf clubs yeah callaway manufactures golf clubs like nike does like TaylorMade does and and these were all fantastic courses for the most part and look if we wound up in a town that there wasn't a callaway rep alice would go to the phone book brian and find the municipal course and we would just go we'd get a cab and we'd just go I mean, obsessed with golf. And it's funny because it seems like like a not very rock and roll kind of a thing. Like, you know, it's the opposite, it's the opposite cliche. It's the opposite of the cliche of what people do. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, uh, it was not cool for a long time. And I know that was part of the reason I never got into it because I was, you know, my heroes as a kid, you know, Van Halen and ACDC and Thin Lizzy and, yeah. Aerosmith, none of those guys played golf. So not to mention like Guns N' Roses and the Black Crows, who we were obsessed with in the late 80s. Yeah, it just wouldn't have occurred to me to ever want to take it up. So uh, thanks to my buddy, Dr. Jeff, and of course, Alice. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a hobby that I'm deeply passionate about. And uh, I love it to this day. My son, both my sons play and, uh, you know, we love playing together. It's great. So now, when did Dr. Jeff get you to play golf? And when, when again did you tour with Alice? Which years? I joined Alice at the very end of 2004. So right. we completed that tour cycle. And then I was there all of 05 and 06. I worked on a couple of other things of my own for two years. And then I came back to Alice's band for 2009, 10, and half of 11 until I joined Thin Lizzy. So all totaled, it was about five solid years of, of touring. And when did Dr. Jeff get you, finally get you into golf? So, yeah, man, that was like in the mid-90s. I want to okay. say like around 95. He, he came to a gig and brought a putter, and I was putting on the bus, you know, like up and down the hallway of the bus. And then he came on a run with us again, and he brought his golf clubs, and he and I rented a car. So we would, like, you know, go to the driving range, and he would help me. And, you know, it was so valuable, man, to get it, get get some help like that from a guy that was so passionate about it. I've learned to, I mean, I take it, you don't play golf, Brian. I, I played goofy golf. I, I've done miniature yeah. golf, which is, you know, I'm first fascinated by the just bizarre courses that can pop up. I mean, when I was a kid, I played baseball, did a little soccer, wasn't really into that. Did little league, played tennis for fun. And then I got older and I just got into all the writing and music. Well, those are good. Those are good, healthy habits too, bro. I feel like I need to exercise more. I'm lucky. I have a fast metabolism, so my I burn off the calories. Plus, you know, in my not for these podcasts because I'm sitting down, but I usually when I'm on the phone with people or I'm I'm editing, I'm pacing around my apartment, so I burn off the calories that way. You know, I'm curious: is golf like a meditative thing for you? Because it's very different than being on stage and playing at high volume and putting out a lot of energy. It's a lot slower. It is. That's a very interesting point you're making, and you're right, but. It is the the long, the older I've gotten, the more meditative it's become. Um, 
you know, early in my days with Alice, I wanted to get better so badly, but just because you're playing every day does not mean you're working on, you're not, you're not working on your technique. There's a technique in the way you swing a golf to properly swing a golf club. Sure. And I, and I swung it incorrectly, Brian, for years and years oh <laughs> and years. And I stunk up a bunch of nice golf courses, you know, and to Alice's credit, he was always, he never lost his cool man. Not once. He was always patient, always encouraging. And, you know, so he, that, that made it that much more unique to have that experience. But yeah, man, you know, when we all started in, you know, bands and touring and even at a local club level, man, or or just regionally, let's, let's state, let's be honest. The three things everybody was obsessed with were booze, drugs, and girls. Yeah. And when you're in a band with guys, it's like a gang. Everybody's thinking and talking about all the same things. And that was all we talked about were those three things. So golf came to me at a time when I really could use it. I didn't get to play as much on the road with Brother Kane because we just didn't have Come on, man. We didn't, we didn't have enough bread for me to roll into a town, you know, get a cab, go to a golf course, pay the greens fees. It, it was just. How much are the average greens fees at a golf course for people who don't know? You can play, you can play 18 holes at a municipal course on the low end, like 25 to 35 bucks. That's super cheap. Yeah. But if, you, if you're going to a proper course, it gets up to 65, 75, 85 really quick. Okay. And then if you're going to some of these courses that we play with Alice, it's easily you know, a hundred bucks plus per person. I, yeah. yeah. I remember you'll love this bro. To that point, we're in Australia. We got the day off. The Callaway hookup doesn't start until the next day. So Alice says, well, there's this course out here, New South Wales. It's where the PGA tour plays and they have their tournament. Let's go there. And I was like, Oh my God, I just saw that on television two weeks ago. Yes, let's go. We go there, Brian, long story short, 500 bucks around. Wow. 500 bucks per person to play 18 hole. Jeez. Now I coughed it up because, you know, it took us an hour and a half to drive there <laughs> and I wasn't, it's like, I'm here with Alice Cooper. I'm not going to, you know, and, and again, man, Alice, usually he would just, man, he just took care of everything. He would drop his credit card, pay for stuff. This was a stretch too far. So I didn't hesitate. You know, I was like, Oh, here's my card. man. yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's do it. But, I've never paid that much money for a round of golf since. And I probably won't ever. again. Was it worth it? <laughs> well, it was, Oh brother, it was picturesque and incredible. It was super, super tough. And I did not play very well that day because again, I was still in that time period where I hadn't really found my proper swing yet. Sure. So can't deny, you know, you're in the cab on the way back. You're thinking, oh, my God, I just paid 500 bucks to get my ass kicked by this, <laughs> by, by this, by this golf course. But, you know, I used to try to swing hard and fast and I wanted to hit it long and I wanted every shot to be perfect. And it just doesn't work like that. It doesn't. It doesn't work like that for the pros. So I've become very kind of philosophical about it as I've gotten older. And anybody that loves golf either needs to get to that place or, or is there already. So I just love it now, man. It's like, it's such a great communal thing. I've got a great group of guys that I play with here in Nashville. Obviously this year we've played a lot, Brian, 
Yeah. The cool thing is, is we only, most times we only play nine holes. 18 holes is too much time. It takes all day. Yeah. It just does. So nine holes is perfect. We walk, we get some exercise. It's great. Ironically, Alice Cooper's booking agent lives here in town. We play together. Chuck Garrick, Alice Cooper's bass player, lives here. We play all three play together. My drummer in the Get Ready, Jared Pope, is a, almost a scratch golfer. He's amazing, Brian. I met Jared in 2007, and he was a badass golfer then. And he's as passionate about it as anyone I've ever met, obsessed with golf. And he, his game shows it, you know. But, uh, man, the coolest addition to our golf buddies is I made a new friend this summer, and that is one Patrick Carney, the drummer from the Black Keys. Yeah. He lives like six blocks away from oh, wow. the course that we play. Yeah. And, and, and it's just like a, it's like a municipal course. It's nothing fancy, but it's a great track. It's difficult. And uh, so it's a good hang, man. It's really, it's really been good for my mental health in this year of the pandemic to, to spend time with those guys. It obviously seems like it's a very social thing. Is it also some, give you sort of some space to clear your head too? Definitely. It is, man. It's like when you're playing golf, you're not really thinking about your work. You know, sometimes one of us will have to keep our phone turned on because we're expecting a call or a text about something important. But, you know, again, man, this has been the pandemic. So for the most part, everybody, the phone stays in the car. You go out and you can walk nine holes easily in two hours. At the worst, two hours is about as long as it would ever take. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's good because when I get in the car, the first thing I do is I check my phone. I check my email, see messages. What's up? If I, you know, what's going on? And I come at it with just a different perspective than if I sit right here at this desk where I'm speaking to you now, which I've done that plenty of times, man, the entire day right here, you know, writing yeah. or interviews or, you know, talk, you know, my manager and I on the phone and scheming and making plans and trying to figure out ways to be more productive. So, I'm really grateful for golf. You know, I really am, brother. It, uh, I've got, you know, I got buddies and rock and roll buddies that still poo poo it. You know, it's sure. like, man, what's wrong with you? We should go to the <laughs> pub. Let's go to the pub and drink some pints. I'm like, exactly. No. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I'm, like, I, I mean, look, I'm like, I'm a big comic book geek and I do a lot. I'm into a lot of stuff that, you know, actually has sort of become cool in rock and roll. I guess it was sort of, it was in back in the eighties where some bands are into stuff like that, but still like, I guess a lot of the rock and roll cliches don't apply so much anymore because it, as someone was pointing out to me, there's been 70 years of rock and roll now. It's kind of hard to be edgy. Wow. <laughs> and really I'm rebellious not- anymore, you know? I haven't thought about it in those terms, but brother, you are 100% right. Yeah. 70 years of rock and roll. Wow. It's, it's crazy. I mean, it's it's one of the things I'm always amazed at is like, I like to go to shows, but the number of people I know that just go to endless numbers of shows. I mean, at a certain point, it, it can be, I'm sure it can be tiring. I mean, you're playing around high volume all the time and life on the road, I'm sure it can be, as we get older, probably gets a little more tiring and you need something to kind of make you happy and probably help you de-stress from a lot of all the other situations you have to deal with. Yeah. I mean, for sure. And I know that golf is all of those things to, you know, if you sat down 20 of my buddies that are in the music business that do play golf and there's a lot of, you know, they would say yes to, to all of those. I love what you said earlier, Brian, you know, the cliches are kind of done, you know, there's no excuse now for 
for bad behavior, especially guys in their forties and fifties. It's like, we've seen, we, we've seen this movie too many times and sure. I got to take, I have to take this moment to reference something that has spoken to me my whole, my whole career and more so in the last 10 years, five years for sure. You remember that classic Martin Scorsese film, the, the last waltz yep. about the band. Yeah. Impeccable film. And just, you know, I've watched it ad nauseum for 25 years. You know, I've, I've got two or three copies of it. My kids have seen it and all that, but man, there's that one scene toward the end when Scorsese asks Robbie Robertson, you know, why are you ending this? Why are you calling it a day, you know, for the band? You know, you sell out stadiums. You're the, one of the most respected bands. You sell millions of records. You've got critical acclaim. Everybody loves you. What gives? And Robbie just, he took a drag off the cigarette and he just shakes his head. He goes, Martin, because it's a goddamn impossible way of life. Mm. Well, you know, to me, rock and roll, like, I think the power that rock and roll had is it, it's for social change. Yeah. And that's what it yeah. was. And that's what it was, I think, initially in a lot of ways. The original rock and roll, I think it caused, it made conservatives angry because of the sort of the energy of the music, the sexual energy of the music, the interracial mingling um, socially. And then by the late 60s, it's the counterculture. It's a psychedelic era. It's anti-war. It's free love. It's all this other stuff going on. And then by the 80s, the late 80s, you know, the hair bands kind of turn it on its head and just has the hedonism and the excess for its own purposes, not as part of something else that's challenging norms anymore. So I think we've kind of lost the thread in a lot of ways. Then these days, too, I think we need rock stars that are willing to piss off the left and the right. You need people that are, are going to say statements that may not be popular, they could truthful, but are not part of a, you know, any sort of one agenda. Brother, yes. I mean, you just covered a lot right there in that one sentence. Am I rambling sentence? Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> but that's, hey, that's what, that's what makes these conversations fantastic. Uh, I'm grateful for that moment in that film, though, because it's really informed my life and my career, especially in the last decade, because it is an impossible way of life, Brian. It's hard. Even when I was with Alice Cooper, listen, it was awesome. It was fun. And he paid me more money than I'd ever been paid in my life, you know, but I'm gone. I'm away from my wife and my kids. Yep. You know, I'm, it, it's no different than working at Walmart, man. I'm at the mercy of the boss. You know, here's the schedule. This is where we're going. I have no say in the calendar, how many days we're gone, what days we're gone. And it's just how it goes. So that was a pivotal part of me deciding to scale everything down, roll up my sleeves, write some of my own songs, get back behind the microphone as well as the guitar. And just try to do my own thing, to be the boss, be in charge of all those things that I just mentioned and see what happens so I can have some balance, so I can keep my home life healthy, my physical, you know, health productive. And sure. so far, so good, brother. So far, so good. It's been incredible. No, we're not looking for rental property down at the beach, you know, for a second house. And that may never happen, but uh, I don't, I've, that's never been what it's all about for me anyway. So, um, well, clearly, I mean, you left, you left a successful band to, to go back to do your own thing. I was thinking, you know, I'm looking at this photo of you here online on, on zoom. And I'm thinking about the fact that as far as golfing, you know, you said you weren't doing, you didn't have proper technique for years. 
how does that affect your posture then? And then how does that affect your guitar playing? Because you need to have proper posture for that too. You don't want to throw out your back by playing your instrument in a weird way, right? Plus, as we get older, you got to worry about arthritis and things like that. <laughs> yeah. You know what, Brian? I've never thought about it. Fascinating question you just asked. And I can tell you in full honesty, I've never thought about it. Well, uh, clearly, it wasn't a problem. You're not like your, your back or your arms aren't <laughs> yeah, and hurting you or thing, anything. Man. Yeah. I mean, unless you're just out there trying to kill the ball with every swing, which none of us are, you know, there's a proper way to swing, just like there's a proper way to to run or ride a bicycle. There's, there's just the right way to do it. And when you finally groove out a decent golf swing, man, it's kind of effortless. I was making such an effort out of it for so long. Maybe I did have more of a chance to hurt myself, you know, 15 years ago, as opposed to now. Sure. You know, I mean, your, your listeners that don't play golf are just going to roll their eyes and laugh at this, but a proper golf swing is like ballet, brother. It is like, it's like a breathe in, breathe out. And if you put that golf club in the right position as you take it back, then you're going to have a better chance of putting it in the right position when you bring it back down. And it's like as I've simplified that fundamental, it's changed the game for me. And it's, I've never enjoyed it more. I've never played better. My scores have never been better because I don't beat myself up about it as bad, you know, when you're you're hitting the ball with some amount of consistency like I'm doing now. Now, what is the worst situation you've got into? Like where you hit the ball and it went completely askew, completely away from the hole. Like what's the worst situation you find yourself having to get out of? Well, man, there's so many. (laughs) Right in the early days, yeah. (laughs) I'm going to drop two or three stories on you. I'm going to try to make them, you know, edit them as best I can. The worst experience I ever had is this was a course I played in Birmingham. I was not on tour, but I was at home playing. Uh You know, I hit my tee shot. I'm hitting my second shot, trying to get it up on the green. And I couldn't really see. So I swing the club and I hit a bad shot. Like it sliced over to the right. When the ball kind of hooks to the right, Brian, that's called a slice. That's the, the worst shot you can hit. So I was like, oh man, I gotta go find my ball. So the other guys hit, we start walking up. And as I walk in the direction of where the ball is, I see a golf cart sitting there. And what happened is I hit my shot so poorly that it went over to the tee box on the next hole and it hit this guy in the leg hard. (laughs) Oh no. And, you know, as I was walking in that direction, I could see this guy looking at me. He was pissed and he had every right to be. So, that was a lesson I'll never forget. I had the people skills to go straight up and take my hat off. And I'm apologizing as I walk over and I say, sir, I, you know, I am so sorry. This is completely on me. Can I pay for your round of golf? You know, I, I just wanted to do whatever I could to try and yeah, uh, let the air out of the situation because that's the worst rookie move you can possibly make. And thank God this guy was cool. He was cool. And he's like, Thank you for apologizing. You know, just be careful. I've been in two other situations, Brian, playing with Alice, both of these. Alice knows everyone. He knows a lot of famous people. And I always would get nervous having to try and hit the golf ball in front of these people. Right. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. So we played in Australia, another Australia story. One of the guys, the promoter, you know, he was a member of this big golf club, like a private club. 
and we go out there and it's very busy. There's a lot of people playing this day. Well, this guy is such a big shot that him and Alice and myself are able to just go straight to the first tee and put ourselves in front of everyone else. Brian, these guys are furious. They don't give a shit who Alice Cooper is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't care. And I remember my knees shaking as I stood up for my ball. And even the, the guy that we play with, he's like, all right, Damon, you need to hit it. You know, you don't have to break any records, but let's try to hit a good shot and get away from these guys. And all that did, man, was make me more nervous. <laughs> of and, course uh, it did. Yeah. So I just, you know, I made it okay. It wasn't a great shot, but it wasn't terrible. The, the best moment, the best story. We're in Los Angeles, and he says, hey, it's just you and me today, buddy. Do you want to go play the Bel Air Country Club? Oh, boy. Yeah, you can imagine. And that's right in the middle of Beverly Hills, man. That's where every famous person that's ever picked up a golf club has been a member of played Sinatra, Dean Martin, Michael Jordan. The list goes on and on. So we go. And as we're walking into the pro shop, the first people we run into are Dennis Quaid and Luke Wilson. Wow. Owen Wilson's brother. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they're all hugs and high fives because they know Alice. Hey, Coop, all right. You know, what's up? Great. And uh, what's his name? Dunleavy. That was the coach of the, uh, the Golden State Warriors at the time. He was there, too. They're all playing together. So it's me and Alice and the president of Callaway Golf. So we go up to the first tee. And, of course, we got to go first. <laughs> Dennis Quay. Luke Wilson, president of Callaway, Coach Dunleavy. I'm really freaking out, Brian. And I just walk over there. I walk up. I remember I closed my eyes. I took a deep breath. And just said, Damon, swing really slow. Just take a slow swing. And, bro, I brought that club back, and I piped it. I bombed it, like, straight down the fairway. It might have been the best tee shot, better than Alice's or that Callaway guy. (laughs) And (laughs) and I remember – as we're starting to walk off the tee box, Dennis Quaid looks at me and he goes, are you really that good? And Alice goes, hell no, he's not that good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alice. <laughs> so many stories, man. Golf, it's just so many great stories. So many great stories. I'm, I, I don't know that I, when I was starting to play with Coop, I wouldn't have thought maybe I would carry it through the rest of my life, you know, like I have. But sure. uh now my dad plays, Brian. He's 83. Uh, I got him into it. You know, he started about 15 years ago. And Really? You know, he, yeah, he's retired. And, man, every time we talk, he thanks me one more time for encouraging him to play golf because it's, it's what he does, man. He, him and my stepmom, and they play together, and they play three times a week. And, of course, they got a whole circle of friends, and it's a social thing. Of course. Well, it gets, so them, out. It gets them out of the house, too. Yeah. And yeah. It's not nothing. To, it's not overly strenuous. I mean, it, but still at that age, it's impressive because a lot of people thinking about this. My parents are 85 now and, you know, they've slowed down, obviously, but they still, you know, they're still going out and shopping and try, try to take walks once in a while. The pandemic's going to change some of the routine. But it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people hit a certain age and things don't go so well. So it's fortunate we have parents that are still active. One hundred percent, brother. And doing and- those things. Yeah, and it's like our parents are setting a good example for us because we're going to be eighty-three one day, and oh, I yeah. hope that we're I hope that we're active and healthy as well. well if you live, keep living your crazy rock and roll lifestyle, Damon Johnson. You know, <laughs> who knows? 
could be something could go wrong you know you might you might start looking for some controversy because you want to you know me brother. sell some records the toxic titan that's me I'm yes just a- I, I could tell at that at that dinner in uh <laughs> in the city you know it's yeah i know it's funny because i do meet people who are younger in this industry and they have gone through that whole thing i mean i actually was really a late bloomer i really started start drinking a lot it's like my 30s i was very like straight laced and whatever I, I think once i became a rock journalist and started hanging out with more people i started drinking jack and coke and then then it became like a cocktail guy. So going into a rock bar and asking for like an apple martini isn't really cool because they just look at you like, what, what's your problem? Yeah. Um, like we don't do that here. Um, but yeah. I like really sweet drinks, which of course are really bad if you have too many of them. That'll really knock you on your, on your butt. I went on a, a trip to Cuba like almost four years ago and I had a lot of mojitos, but they were really watered down. But by the end of that trip, I had like, I, was, I wasn't like, it wasn't having a, a normal hangover. It was like a sugar hangover. Because there's yeah. so much sugar in those drinks, my body felt really terrible <laughs> last day. I was there, like, yeah, I'm not doing that again. I yeah, man, drunk- you, I, I was gonna say, good for you for uh, for getting away with drinking sweet drinks for so long, man. The crowd I run with, they would have they would have beaten my ass if I'd have started drinking sweet drinks. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, it's not manly enough. You know? Yeah, right. no, it's got to be whiskey. It's got to be. I like. I look. I, very- I like. I like bourbon and coke. Yeah. Yeah. That's but a I'll tell you something. I, I, a friend of mine dated a cop for a while and he was like me. He liked his Mai Tais. And so he would go to like a cop function and his you know, fellow officers are making fun of his drinks. He's like, you see your beer? They're like, yeah. He's like, my drink has three times the alcohol that yours does. So really, which is, which is the lamer drink here? I mean, yeah, everything is all about penis envy with guys, man. It's all about, you know, who's got the biggest stick and it's like, so ridiculous but in golf that doesn't really apply does it no it does the big stick doesn't apply in golf but yeah you know man it's funny because i've always dreaded that my kids would want to ask a lot of questions about my 20s and 30s and if they ask i'm going to tell them but they haven't asked brian and i don't think they care because they're just they're already wired completely differently than we were when we were kids. It's like, of course, you know, the guys that were teaching us about life and girls and bad behavior was everyone from Keith Richards to Ted Nugent to David Lee Roth. Yeah. You know, those were our, those were our role models. My kids don't have any role models like that. And they, they don't want any like that. (laughs) You know, it's interesting because I do, I'm, I'm so glad I did. I was a teenager in the eighties as politically incorrect as it was. I really, I'm glad I was there to experience that time period because we do live, like, I think we're making a lot of progress as society, but I still think we need some political incorrectness. We really can't, you know, there are, there are, there are things that like, I, I think hedonism is fine. I think the problem, I think the eighties were great. If you were a teenage boy, I think if you were a teenage girl, not so much. Like, even if you look at all the movies that were made for kids, it was usually boys who had the, the lead roles. You know, right. and, and women were a lot more objectified. But I wonder if you just had equality, hedonism and like <laughs> political incorrectness, if it would be different. You know, I mean, I've had I've had female friends tell me that women have really raunchy conversations about sex, just like men. They just don't do it in public. That's the, the way difference. men do. Men yeah. think that women are going to think that's cool and sexy and it's not. Women will have all sorts of discussions about stuff that they won't tell us. But it's just that they're a lot more discreet about it. And I think that's that, that's that's what rock and roll has kind of shifted. Like I sort of appreciated when you had a band like the Donnas that came around 20 years ago. They're trying to be like the Runaways. It was never going to be as raunchy. As that. But, you know, the women in the 70s and the 80s were, were different. Right. I mean, you had the Runaways, you had Joan Jett, you had Wendy O. Williams. 
I mean, talk about yeah. being un-PC, man. There's no question about it, brother. And I, I recall in the 90s when girls did, you know, women were, they were more outspoken. Yeah. You know, that, would, that was one of the positive, you know, it was productive about bands in the 90s, the alternative bands and uh, the alternative movement. And it was, you know, the, the, the hedonism, certainly the Sunset Strip stuff had been almost kind of obliterated. And, uh, but I heard I, some I, of the I, 90s bands could be worse, actually. I know a publicist told me that some of the 90s alternative bands could be worse. You just didn't hear about it. Oh, of course, of course, of course. And we would run into those bands. You know, I mean, we would, we would drink with them and, and, you know, tell stories and all that and be like, oh, my God, I can't believe those guys are doing that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We thought, we thought we were the only ones doing that. Um, but no. I just remember meeting girls in the nineties that were outspoken and how seductive that was to yeah. a guy like me, guys like us. I was like, wow, listen to her talk and look how confident she is and look at how she doesn't take any shit. She holds everyone accountable for everything. Hey man. I love I'm, strong I, women. I married, I married one of those women. She's upstairs right now uh, making sure my, our 16 year old has, has got his homework lined out for tonight, you know, he's that not was, going out to a show. No, no he's not, but you <laughs> know, anyway, that, yeah, that made a huge impact on me, man. And, um, accountability is something I think everybody needs in a variety of doses. And I just didn't have it for a long time, Brian. And, you know, life, life is so much better when you, when you can share it with people that that'll tell you the truth. Hey, man. Well, you know, and look, there's certain things you're younger that you do that are just stupid and it just is the way it is. And it's really, really harming yourself. But, uh, you know, it was something I was thinking of getting back to golf, something I was thinking of, have you ever been to a, like, well, actually play, have you ever played miniature golf after you started golfing and how is that radically different from playing a real <laughs> game of golf? Well, miniature golf is definitely, uh, is all about just having fun. I will say that when I play miniature golf now, I, I do take the putting very serious. Like I have <laughs> so <do> far, I. <laughs> I have far higher expectations for what I, you know, expect the ball to do. It's like, oh, this is a, you know, the hole is right there. I can see it. I, there's a path to the hole. I'm going to put this first shot in that hole right now. And of course, it really happens. <laughs> <But> <laughs> the expectation is certainly there. Well, what's the, what's the craziest miniature golf course you found? And then what's the craziest golf course you found? The craziest miniature golf course, there was one in Birmingham that I would go and play with my kids. And, you know, it. You, I just remember they would get so upset because on the very last hole, you would put the ball into that hole, but then you couldn't retrieve it. It would go into the ground, into some sort of, you know, dispenser. And then someone would come later in the day and gather up all those balls and take them back to the little starting position. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So I just remember, you know, loving to take my kids to play miniature golf when they were babies, but dreading, I mean, literally crying, screaming, where's my ball? You know, it was like, it was chaos. Um, the, <laughs> you know, I've played so memorable, so many memorable golf courses and I've got memories of great shots and I got memories of bad shots. Um, but I do, there's one professional golf course. I think it's in Wisconsin. Uh -huh. My golfing buddies are going to really give me a hard time if I get this wrong, but it's called whistling straights. 
and you know it's along the lake's edge and the wind is substantial and it's why you know whenever the pros play there you know it's really tough because the wind changes everything uh, in golf and uh i'll just never forget whistling straights brian i i played out of my shoes fantastic that day for some reason and this was one of those super nice it's so nice man that you you take a caddy with you like you're required to take a caddy from you know the starting place so we had a guy with us that would say okay you need to look out for this look out for that hit this way and i just played lights out that day for whatever reason and um for people that don't enjoy golf they can't possibly measure what that feeling is like um, yeah, but I want to make sure I say this to you. The great thing about golf is that at any minute with any swing of the club, you could very possibly hit the ball the exact same way that a professional can. You could hit it just as well. You can make a putt just as difficult as they make at any given moment. And that is the drug that you never shake. That's the addiction right there. Mm. Alice and I have talked about it so much. It is literally an addiction. And I can go out there tomorrow and go walk my nine holes with my friends and I can play really poorly. But if I hit that one drive where I just pipe it right down the middle, that's all I need, man. That's all I need is just one. Or I sink that really tricky putt and it goes in the hole. Just one shot is all it takes. I'll be back the next time and I will have forgotten all of those bad shots. And I'll be thinking about that, that one good one. Uh, what a good, like, what's wrong with that? What's, what's negative about that? I think that's a, that's a life lesson in that. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I remember uh, I used to love miniature, go- miniature golf as a kid. I remember once <laughs> my, uh, my dad, we were on a vacation somewhere. And I think my mom was with my brother somewhere. My dad and I were driving along and I, I see those little flags and on this field. And I'm like, Oh my God it's a miniature golf course. And we drove in and it was a cemetery. And it was like, this was, <laughs> was bizarre. <laughs> Never forgotten that. It's, just, it's one of those things that you <laughs> talk about reversal of expectations and disappointment. Uh, have you ever actually right, been any, have you ever been anywhere? Have you ever been there? That's happened. Like, you're like, Oh my God, I see a golf course. You get there. Like, Oh no, it's not. Oh, like listen, man, we've yeah. All, all the time. I mean, we've, we've literally, I've been with Alice where we've literally gone in the rental car in search of a golf course and we'll be like, okay, that over there looks like that could be it. I mean, we're, we're headed in something resembling the right direction, but, you know, go all the way down some little side road thinking this is the way, or this is it. And then you get there and it's a cornfield or it's a, you know, a potato field. And it's the things that we do to try and find golf. Does that haunt your dreams? Like you're dreaming, you're, really <laughs> you're in search of the most perfect golf course and you've, you come across like this. <laughs> well, I got to tell you this, man. I have, this is, I've loved this conversation, you know, talking about golf in this way, Brian. And was fun. don't miss this, bro. All this, I'm, I'm already thinking, I'm look, my calendar's over here on the, right by my shelf. It's like, okay, well, I could play tomorrow. You know, if the weather's right, you know, I'm I'm already thinking about it, man. So I'm gonna next time I get out there, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit some shots in your honor, and I'm gonna tell the guys about this great conversation we had about I appreciate golf. It. Well, we know what I, I, well, maybe maybe you know maybe I'll have to get a golf lesson from you, Brian. It would be my it would be my pleasure, buddy. And I promise you, I can I can give you some good tips. 
tips well, that I, I tips that I wasn't qualified to give you ten years ago, but I can do it now. <laughs> <laughs> Once I get out of this pandemic, I think I there's I've just places I want to go. I've decided that I've spent a lot of time indoors in my life doing writing. When I go out a lot, but then there's also and you do the same thing as musicians. You spend a lot of time in the studio, and even when you're on tour, you're backstage somewhere. You know, there's a lot yeah. of a lot of indoor time. So I think, uh, yeah, once this is over, I think I have a list of things I should probably start doing. Well, I encourage you to take up some golf, Brian, and uh, golf lessons for free on me. Be my Fabulous. pleasure. And, uh, and, and hopefully we'll make, there won't be celebrities there that will, you know, make me choke. I, th- I think I can even help you with that. I can talk you down from that nerve wracking experience as well, man. Maybe, maybe <laughs> you need all- to do it. Maybe you need to do a book. You need a guide to golfing your golfing guide. Well, brother, I could I could write one. I've I've played or a video so bad, podcast. Played so bad for so long, but uh, brother, I hope that I get to see you in person again really soon, Brian. I had fun with you guys at dinner. We definitely it was a good uh, a good time. You had good stories, and you guys are very down to earth. You know, you seem to enjoy your life and uh, and not live with sort of any pretensions. Well, thank you for that, brother. I'm Ricky, and I both have that in common. We definitely love what we do, and we feel. Like it's a privilege because it is a privilege. We're really lucky that this is how we get to feed our families and uh, this is our vocation. Yeah. We feel, we feel very, very fortunate, man, to do righteous work for a living. And you're having fun and you're happy and your brain hasn't been destroyed by any number of substances and you're... <laughs> so far, so far, so good. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, man, it was great to chat with you. You too, brother. Listen, let's keep in touch and... Uh, you know, I'm going to tell Michelle and Melissa how much I enjoyed this. I, I appreciate you having me on. and All the best, Brian. All the best to you. Thanks again. And hopefully we'll chat with you soon. Okay, buddy. Take care. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That wraps up the latest Side Jams. Please join me for the next episode, which is coming very soon. As always, my theme music comes from Fox and the Law, licensed through AudioSocket. Thank you very much for listening and your support. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.